If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, follow, and rate on your preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to reach out to me, simply connect to me on Twitter. Links in the description. So a lot of them kind of even reveal descriptions of or evidence of what the buildings looked like. So even if changes had been made to the buildings, you could tell from the paintings itself uh, what the buildings were. This is Sonali Danpal. She is an architect and a built heritage conservationist. She is pursuing a PhD in architectural history and theory. Her research work focuses on what it's like to live in a princely city in South India during the late 19th and early 20th century. She investigates urban expansion of Bangalore, residential extension and how buildings are integral in understanding the culture and society. I'm terrible with most histories but it surprises me that we can bring out many details and similarities. It also reminds me how fortunate we are to live in the 21st century. In this episode we talk about architecture, history and bubonic plague. Here's my conversation with Sonali Danpal. How did you get started with architecture? Uh, what fascinates you about this about historical buildings and the story they tell uh, can you tell us about your early encounters with architecture and why you continue to work on discovering our past through architecture sure um so i did my undergraduate in architecture in bangalore um and uh, actually the course uh, if anyone knows it or, or anyone knows architects is very designed to build a new so everything was about validation about building new structures but then as i went along i think quite quickly or by my it's a five year degree so by my third year i quite realized quite quickly that i wasn't really enjoying building or designing on on just sort of expansive sites and instead what i had a lot of fun with was when you know we had a lot of parameters so okay we had to only design within this restricted space so we had to renovate a building and so on and then in about my fifth year we had an elective by someone who was a conservationist so conservation just involves uh, using historic structures or by restoring them or using them for different purposes and so she did this elective for about six classes and it was it just it made me realize why i didn't like uh, just designing a new and i think there was no looking back from there so um they then interned uh, in this um, practice in baroda uh, called karan grover and associates and even though they were a very sustainable uh, inclined firm to sort of green buildings and the lead uh, certified buildings and so on he was also very interested in dabbling with um, historic uh, precincts so um, he had worked on some world heritage site projects and so on and so the way he spoke about those i enjoyed more than his uh, other projects and so after that i i i decided to do a masters degree because uh, without specialization specialized training it's quite difficult to work with historic buildings and then um i i went on to work in bangalore and in bombay and then now i'm doing my phd in architectural history uh, so how was your experience of you know exploring these uh, historical buildings or sites evolved uh, you know as you learn more about them uh, of course you might uh, see more detail than an average person but uh, how has that changed your perspective and changed your personality and how you see the world today 
I think uh, that I'm convinced that uh, there is absolutely no need for building a new and uh, and that's not only from the perspective of saving something historic but that um but that um, architecture and the building industry is one of the largest contributors to climate change. And with the number of existing buildings and the building stock that we have, so much can be done. So conservation doesn't only mean like ornamental saving the 16th century temple, but it also means trying to readapt other structures for as exists. So I think in that way, saving something uh, which is historic, and historic doesn't necessarily mean hundreds of years old, right? Um, and to to cater to today's use is is something that has fundamentally changed. I think the way I see the world, right, uh, in relation to these structures. But then also um, there is while uh, while I studied in the UK um, and I went back to practice in Bangalore, I just think that it was so humbling uh, because of the fact that just the range and types of buildings that were available to me to access. For, for different types of work. So we would work on colonial letter building, we would work on 16th century forts, um, and just the sort of uh, gamut of buildings were just, or, or structures or precincts is just so, I mean, it's just um, awe striking. And I think that has really changed the way I view um, what, what needs to be saved and what doesn't, uh, and changed my perspective on the state that we're from, which is Karnataka, because so much of the work that I did was locally. Uh, that that's interesting because uh, I, I wasn't aware of you know restoring a historical building and actually making use of it usually mm -hmm. you know when I visit some old uh, architectural sites it's usually you know preserved and you know guarded off or just for yeah. visiting purpose yeah. so does, does this happen a lot uh, do we do we re actively restore old buildings and make use of them uh, I think there is a very dated perception of restoration in India, and this is a fundamental problem of why that doesn't happen as much as it should in India, right? Uh, whereas in different parts of the world, so like say even in the UK, about 55% of the buildings are old historic structures. So like even in the house that I'm staying and paying rent in at the moment is a historic development that's kind of readapted to form new housing. So they use uh, a lot of historic structures to cater to new uses. And of course it does happen in India as well, but just far more, um, far more uh, smaller numbers. And I think it's very much linked to the fact that labor and construction is still relatively affordable and as opposed to here. And I think that because of the construction of new development and new growth as um, something to be very sought after, there is a new, there is a way of um, looking towards the new for solutions, uh, as opposed to looking to the past for solutions, if that makes sense. So uh, I think that it doesn't happen as much as it should, but I wouldn't say it doesn't happen at all. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think concrete is uh, pretty expensive in terms of uh, <laughs> our uh, resources sure. uh, so yeah th that's really nice that uh, it is happening um, mm -hmm. you mentioned bangalore uh, what are some of your favorite places or buildings to visit uh, when you're in bangalore uh, <laughs> so some of them are not necessarily buildings but then okay so when, let's begin with a building so i think that uh, there is a school in in chamrajpet called fort high school it's uh, it was built in 1907, so that's about um, 
123 years old at the at today to, to date and uh, i worked on the restoration from um uh from 2017 onwards and uh, so i mean it was one of those buildings that we worked in so i was there day in and day out and i have a very special connection to it because of that but then i think that what i like about it the most is that again like uh, answering your example of uh, is an old building being used for some new use um it was built as a school and it continues to be used as a government school so that's really interesting because we would see the students in in and out every day and you know you you see the building being used which is uh, very lovely for someone uh, who's a conservationist and then the other thing is also that it's uh, it adjoins a big ground which is open to public so um, again like it's not restrictive like uh, many many older bungalows or quite uh, i mean quite um, high profile buildings are converted to private use which then again acts as a barrier for other people to access it right so i think that's one of the really nice things about fortai school but then i think what i enjoy in bangalore the most is so um i must be fourth or fifth generation from bangalore so i think for me it's those it's these localities that always have stories to them so apart from the fact that fortai school is fortai school um my great grandfather used to live in chamrajpet so my mother remembers uh, walking with him and sitting in the fort high school precinct grounds for example so for me it's the buildings almost act as a background to all of this uh, sort of these memories right um and uh, so there's there are all of these connections to it both personal as well as historical that make these uh, precincts really fascinating uh other things just that i miss and that i really um like in bangalore were i grew up in basangudi so um uh, me and my brother used to go to bugle rock park a lot and uh, so so places like that have very intimate connections for me and uh, and i think i enjoy them so much because of that uh, and our most uh, most uh, historical or uh mm -hmm. bungalows like you mentioned are they are mostly open to public uh, you mentioned some are owned privately so if yeah. somebody wants to visit uh, how would they do so that's it this is the problem that pervades conservation itself which is that um, basically the the people who uh, just as any uh, uh so the organization that kind of deals with conservation in india or preservation in india is the archaeological survey of india so this is a national authority that controls or uh is in charge of monuments from ranging from the taj mahal to the red fort or even um uh so something in karnataka like hampi right um then there are then there are state authorities that within the state will have monuments listed within them as well but leaving these two aside uh, there are little um uh, leaving these two aside there's few mechanisms for other buildings to be uh, you know protected so the their lists of buildings that they preserve are very limited and um, and their ideas or these these institutional ideas of what should be preserved is also very limited so what they what they say is that um in terms of legislation uh, buildings that are not older than 100 years are not to be preserved or i mean rather than that it says that they preserve buildings which are 100 years and older right so 
buildings like colonial bungalows and things like that really fall out of these definitions, not just because they're not, I mean, they may be a hundred odd years old, but also it's their use that they're not monumental in their status. So they don't get saved. So most of them have also just kind of remained in families and so on. So it is quite difficult to both uh, propose to save them because also now um, they kind of tend to be in some of the most expensive areas in the city. So even for the government to acquire them, it's just um, it's just a huge sum of money. Uh, so and most of them either get demolished or um, or uh, then they get converted to sort of private use like cafes and things like that. And while that's nice, uh, it's also very limiting in who they allow inside it, because uh, if you're going to have a cafe off, off uh, Commercial Street, um, it, it's going to charge a certain amount to enter it and to, to use the space, right? So, uh, so I think right now that most of the bungalows that are accessible would be limited by that. So for example, Cinnamon, which is, um, which is just very close to Commercial Street. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a massive bungalow that has been converted to a cafe slash boutique. Um, then there are a couple in Fraser Town, um, Bungalow Seven, for example, which can tends to get used for wedding venues and a kind of other events. So so these are places that you can visit, but uh, yeah, I, I, perhaps you may not be able to go in or are limited in the ways that you can go in. But um, I would recommend maybe taking a walk through Cooktown or Fraser Town and then just looking from the outside and um, uh, just sort of uh, passing through these areas near Coles Park and so on, and then kind of figuring out what these structures look like as you go. Uh, what would you suggest to a non-academic or simply a traveler who wants to expand their experience uh, you know, on their next visit to a historical structure? Uh, are there some aspects of uh, building architecture or its construction or simply that something that you think gets usually unnoticed that might be interesting to pay more attention to? Uh, I think that sometimes uh, what I mean, what I would recommend to people is to see buildings as uh, results of processes of culture, society and so and politics. Whereas people view them as uh, very artifact, like, uh, okay, it's built with this, it's this color and so on. But really they're a reflection of what society is. Um, so they're very intimately connected by who they were owned by, where they're located and so on. So often people get very bogged down with what style is this building and what color is this building and what is it made of? And, and those are really interesting, of course, because they give us very different observations and can tell us, a lot about the past, but at the same time, to view that, to view or think about them, their making as a production of, uh, you know, of, of society in that sense. So, um, for example, um, uh, Baswangudi uh, was laid out uh, in a particular way with, uh, you know, um, like a gridiron pattern, but then also from Krishna Rao Park, you have these diagonal roads. And then kind of we have these drawings or historical drawings of uh, particular communities and castes being put in different places, right? So when you go and see a building in Basanguri, I think also what should you should be asking is, oh, okay, this looks like this, this gate is made of this, and these buildings elements are made of that. But then why is it here? And what does it mean to have been here? And who owned it? And kind of who they were within uh, political sort of, um, who they were politically within, were they 
were they were they a barrister did they work for the civil services were they someone of were they someone uh, were they elites I, and all of these kind of um, questions really shape the building itself because the buildings are quite representative of status right so if we view buildings like that as a part of these processes i think that that people would see the value in saving them more than it's a nice thing to look at yes yeah, so the, yeah so basically learn more about the stories and uh, yeah. uh the kind of people who you know pushed uh, technology back then to construct mm -hmm. these uh, buildings uh, and also craftsmanship uh, which is yeah. which is quite quite interesting uh, yeah I, I i i don't do any of those <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let me give you an example so sometimes uh, if you are able to uh, and you go and take a look at uh, some of the tiles in like you, do you know what manglo tiles are there are these there are these clay tiles which are kind of made in a mold and they're okay. not just curved they have like uh, I, for the lack of a better way to put it serrated kind of edge um so usually if they're historic uh, or not if they are historic usually they have like the company that made them and the date of their production or model number below them and so you can tell the date of the building sometimes by just looking at that for example and then you some of these factories were from the historic state of Travancore which is now Kerala some of them are from Mangalore so then like once you see things like that then you start to put together this kind of um network of uh, materials going around right like this this notion or idea of modern materials being shipped and uh, sent from across seems like a new thing but it's not so so for example that that's just an example of how you piece together these structures as something a part of a bigger whole right yeah that's that's really interesting in one of your talks also you talk I, I, what I got out of it is that mm -hmm. buildings can say so much about what was happening back then. Uh, yeah. So even if there are no written documents left behind, uh, like you said, you can piece together a lot. So that's, mm -hmm. that's really interesting. Uh, do you host uh, workshops or events on architecture or plan on doing so? Uh, when I was working with Intac in Bangalore, we used to quite a bit and I used to do some historic walks as well. And I'm hoping after the pandemic, when I do come back for some field work to Bangalore, I can do some. But uh, at present, with the pandemic, everything I think has uh, taken, uh, I don't know, a backseat. Uh, but I think mainly I was working with students. So often I would conduct workshops to to record buildings. So what we call surveying so or measured surveying. So teaching students uh, from colleges like BMS or even have holding workshops. So mainly those interested in kind of surveying as how to measure a building, what do you record, how do you record it and so on. So like some basics to talk about things like that. But then uh, historic walks with Intac were kind of open to a wider public. So you used to get a range of age groups and they were really interesting. And I think people had a great time while doing it. And I do miss it, but um, I think it'll be some time until we'll be able to do things like that again. Uh, speaking of students, does India have mm -hmm. enough people uh, working in research and preserving historical buildings and sites? And also, are there enough funds being alloc allocated towards this? Uh, so, so there's both. There are both some things to. Um, how do you say? Um, there, are, I mean. I think there's a growing market for it, and what's interesting is that um, I, I I was actually writing a paper about 
just how many how many women are represented within conservation, right? Um, and so, um, so many firms uh, have a large number of women working uh, in conservation, which is really interesting. And uh, I I, do, I know little to say about why why women are choosing to do this. So so I mean, there's quite an interesting gender balance. But apart from which. Over the last 10 years, I think there are about eight, nine colleges now offering uh, conservation as a viable master's degree for two years. So colleges like SPA, Bhopal, Delhi, uh, SEPT in Ahmedabad and so on, which are quite, I mean, very, very well known and renowned colleges that are offering this degree. And many are offering it even as a diploma course. And it's really expanding because they've started to look at textile conservation or, you know, material conservation as well. So like institutes like the National Institute in, uh, of Design in Delhi, I mean, sorry, um, uh, what, uh, what is it called? Sorry, I forget. Um, uh, NMA, sorry, National Museum. Um, uh, so they have an, run an institute that kind of focuses more on material conservation and object conservation. So I think there is a growing both um, uh, in terms of funding as well as opportunity. But at the same time, I think that in India, we're faced with like very, very different challenges from those of uh, just having the number of people to do it. Because so this, these discussions of uh, development versus heritage are huge problems, right? So like take, for example, um, now in Delhi, where Latins is Delhi is trying, uh, is they, they, there's a Central Vista project that's trying to kind of change Latins is Delhi's design. And so really, um, heritage takes the back seat because uh, it's overwritten by many other factors, the main being uh, monetary ones. Uh, because the construction industry is so driven by uh, uh, capital that, you know, uh, heritage really does take the backseat in a country like India. So there are some quite sad realities of that. And of course, then there are also, you're right, in that funding, there is a huge lack of funding. So some sites are very well funded and have multiple people interested in multiple stakeholders who kind of continue its funding. Um, and some just that are completely ignored. So some sites that I've had to visit in Karnataka, like, you know, there are, there's a site called Lakundi, which has um, something like 110 tanks and temples or something like that, like a huge number. And many of the tanks we used to go to find, and they would be in agricultural fields covered with, um, you know, greenery and, you know, really sort of obscured from view. So and at the same time, then you go to a site like Humpy, which is so well funded and, you know, um, has has multiple stakeholders taking care of it. Of course, that, it's not that that doesn't mean that it's perfect and it doesn't have issues. Um, but uh, I, it's such a varied landscape that it's really difficult to say yes or no. But I think there are some things that are good and that then an expansion of um, I don't know, the industry itself is good. And at the same time, um, there are some cons as well. And uh, there's a lot to be done. Um, but also I think that there has been huge governmental effort, um, in terms of some sites, because how do you say, um, there are these projects, which are these circuits, and I don't know whether you know of them, but like the government's, uh, quite recent proposal to make some historic circuits then mean that, uh, some sites get included within these massive, uh, um, smart city projects and so on, and then some don't. So, um yeah <laughs> uh, i think that uh, yeah there are very many contradictory things but also some things that um uh, speak uh, well of uh, what the field is uh 
are the public involved in making uh, such decisions or uh, you know whether or not to preserve or conserve a historical building uh, or can the public even be involved in you know contributing to uh, preserving or supporting unfortunately i think that's limited right uh, because most of the projects that get pro even even the firms are getting hired by governments uh, national government state government projects and so on very few are privately preserved and so really none of these decisions are very open to public uh, kind of decisions which can take in multiple stakeholders opinions right and so these are very top down uh, top down kind of um, uh, projects so unfortunately no and they're not really participants within uh, a lot of large public processes like this of course there are some some different ones so for example the fact that amdabad's uh, historic town i mean historic city uh, center has been sort of listed as a unesco project has been a huge uh, public effort but then those are kind of the exceptions as opposed to the um, uh, the the norm can you talk about the wall paintings at nagore fort and uh... your experience working with these paintings uh, what stories do they tell uh, to the paintings talk about the science uh, medicine agriculture and conflict during that time yeah so um so basically i was um there's a wall painting conservation course that uh, is run by uh, by the merangad fortress so merangad is uh, the fort in uh, jodhpur which is a trust that is run by the maharaja of jodhpur and they also control uh, uh, they are also the trust for nagore fort right and that's about uh, a few hours away from jodhpur so they in collaboration with an institute in london called the courtold uh, uh, kind of ran this uh, wall painting course um, uh every year for students or interested participants in india so six week program where they they introduced people uh, who were interested to kind of um, engage with these wall painting and then they selected mainly people who either were architects or working with conservation or sometimes even material conservators because it was fully funded by them and so on so for six weeks we kind of learned how to work or uh, or work with wall paintings in the sense that for me it was more the recognition of if i found a building with wall paintings to then defer it to a specialist as opposed to me tackling it myself because i understand the complexity of what it means to preserve wall paintings rather than me doing it myself if that makes sense um but then i went to work with them as well the next year for another campaign so um i think it it was just a very revelating experience because these paintings were some of the best preserved paintings examples of uh, wall paintings in the country and um and yeah in terms of what they told us what they taught us um, so a lot of them kind of even revealed descriptions of or evidence of what the buildings looked like so even if changes had been made to the buildings you could tell from the paintings itself uh, what the buildings were so that was really interesting and then just um the the institute that i was working with the courtall had was is is so specialized in what they do and um so just various ways of identifying what pigments were made of um what underdrawings what the technology was and so on it was just really fascinating and um just in a way that i hadn't engaged with paintings itself because as architects i think that even though we work with historic buildings there is a tendency to focus on the overall rather than the minute 
and a lot of the buildings that I've I know uh, that I hadn't I hadn't really interacted with buildings which had paintings on them. So it just taught me a lot about different mediums and uh, just uh, different types of conservation. So it was just really fascinating as a project, both in terms of trying to understand uh, who was a part of the process itself, because suddenly you have this trust, then then you have the uh, and all of this was private, right? In a way that is unusual. So um, yeah, it was, I think, a big learning experience in terms of what I saw, but as well as uh, how it operated. Uh, I'm not sure how detailed uh, you know about this topic, but what goes into preserving such wall painting? Uh, can you talk about the techniques and science involved in preserving the wall paintings? Sure. Uh, I think so, 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 I mean, I think that let me let because I'm not a wall painting specialist, I think I can compare it to buildings and then talk about it in that context. So with any of these structures, right, uh, first is uh, to identify its existing condition and why it's gotten there. So it's the same with Fort High School. It's the same with the wall paintings as well. The principle is similar in that we, you have to evidence what is there actively happening and why it's there and what's created that problem, right? So, for example, one of the big issues in historic buildings is that um, people don't clean drains and people don't maintain paths. So then like when drains are not cleaned and so on, those portions of the building kind of tend to um, absorb a lot of damp and then you have vegetation growth. So similar to wall paintings in that there's a lot of, um, if there are cracks, if there are issues that are existing, then there's water and then they make, make uh, water entering the building and then they rise to a multiple set of problems, right? So I think the first, any process of conservation begins with documenting what is there at present and kind of identifying what the issues are, right? So for example, you see discoloration somewhere or you see growth of some kind of algae or whatever, you kind of identify these things, photograph them, and then you test for whether what it is, right? So. For example, on these wall paintings, often they would find salts because salts are created because of their perhaps damp and so on. So then you have crystallizing of salts. So then since they've photographed the salts, then they would take a sample of the salt and identify what it is, right? And most of these processes are not about restore, I mean, they're more about kind of preventing further loss as opposed to kind of trying to bring back what was, right? Because Colors have faded over time, things have changed. So like, for example, stone, uh, any stone, right, acquires this layer of patina, so kind of discoloration over it. So the point is not to restore the original color, but then to prevent further eroding of the stone, right? And it's the same with paintings in that the point is not to restore the vibrancy of the original color, because that means that then you're painting a new, which is not what is historic. So the point is to prevent these salts from turning up or this damp from turning up. So kind of the process evolves from, from there, which is not trying to reverse what has happened to rather prevent further deterioration. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't really aware of to what degree, you know, like you mentioned, with, is it recolored or uh, yeah. is it preserved? Uh, but uh, are also some uh, paintings cut out of the building walls and then preserved or uh, preserved in clean rooms or something like that? Oh, I think there were like some, there were, there were 
I mean, this is what I understand. And this I'm saying anecdotally because I haven't read enough about it. But there was this Italian preservation method which involved cutting parts of the building out or of wall painting out and then taking them elsewhere, which is then displayed in museums in Europe and so on. But it's a very dated and looked down upon kind of uh, method now um, for various different reasons. So mostly the treatment that is kind of approved of is treatment, treating on site. But uh, I mean, when you were talking about kind of uh, this, this trying to not restore the vibrancy and so on, this is also another battle which is um, which is the same of the why are historic buildings not being saved, right? In that people's expectation of what is beautiful or what is to be preserved is these kind of grand, uh, bright and these kind of things. So, so even though a lot of effort goes into kind of this restoration process, um, because people want, or and when I say people, I'm just talking about lay public kind of um, expectations from historic structures and aesthetic standards and so on. Um, new is always kind of considered good, right? And so I think people sometimes can be disappointed uh, with the fact that the red is not very looking very red and is looking more orange or, you know, um, expectation from these things is for it to look anew after the process as opposed to for it to not decay further. And so there's this constant battle between how do the restorers kind of cater to that, but at the same time, not um, tamper with what the historic material, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I can understand. Uh, usually, yeah. when I visit, I tend to <laughs> want to have the things uh, look as they were back then. But yeah, that's uh, that's totally wrong, I would say now. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as a structural engineer, I'm curious on preserving the structural integrity of the mm -hmm. building. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have you experience or do you know about uh, you know preserving or restoring the structural integrity? So usually we do call a structural engineer to consult on projects, but then obviously, as you can tell, when you're reverse engineering something and trying to understand how they built it, it's quite difficult to do tests and kind of determine and ascertain, you know, uh, whether some 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 parts of it because you're kind of probing uh, something that's already built, right, and in ways that you can't perhaps measure. So, uh, for example, in Fortai School, there was a structural engineer that helped us consult. So, like, we made huge pits uh, at the building to look at the foundation and see whether there's any tilts and so on. But then these are not really scientific methods of, I mean, of, in the sense that they're more observational methods or qualitative methods as, as opposed to quantitative. So, uh, again, like, and a lot of it has to do with observation experience and as opposed to kind of being able to measure and know and... So even roofing and things like that, most of it has to do with um, visual observations and uh, qualitative uh, what worked in one place and then trying to derive from that as opposed to knowing that this material or this span needs this, for example, in a way that you can do a new building with. So I think that it's always a bit of a cyclic process that you try and then you might end up with error and then you kind of go back. But yeah, structural consultants are extremely important, according to me, within that process, right? Yeah. Uh, are, are the kinds of uh, uh, reinforcement structures quite different? Uh, are the, because I see some of the pictures, I see a lot of wood and uh, steel in different yeah. combinations. So do you know about, can you talk about those uh, uh, differences that we see from today's uh, uh, materials? 
Oh yeah, yeah. So basically, like I mean, I put it in a simplistic way, but the way we construct now modern constructions are like kind of like we build a skeleton and everything that fills it is really not structural, right? So like your columns and beams in modern buildings are what acts as the support uh, of the building, whereas the walls itself are just kind of curtains, really, really, so they can be anywhere. So, I mean, because of the foundation that supports these these beams and columns is what really props up buildings. But historically, without these systems, um, of course, uh, I mean, I'm not, uh, my my area of expertise is, is more colonial era buildings, which is like, which is, uh, 19th century to 20, 20th century buildings. So this is kind of before reinforcement has happened, right? Or maybe at some points at the late 19th to the early 20th, it's begun to be introduced, but it's not being used in the same expansive way that we use now. So the walls are very thick because they are they they bear the load, which is that they support the building as opposed to now, right? So the walls mm -hmm. are thick, they can even measure 50 centimeters or so half a meter really, or and, and onwards. So, and apart from which um, the roofing itself is also uh, usually at different types of techniques. So, because we don't have these long spans, which we can get now because of uh, beams, we, we couldn't get then, right? So uh, techniques that we used were uh, roofing systems, like what we call Madras Terrace roofing system, which is basically, um, so wooden beams uh, or rafters, which are smaller than what we think of beams now, are put together, kind of laid out, over which you lay out tiles, which are almost like clay tiles, which, uh, you, which are flat, and you lay them out, and then you lay another layer of clay tiles intersecting that, and then you kind of pour uh, lime concrete, or I mean lime, um, uh, lime a, a mixture of lime, basically, which is, um, which is again, doesn't, it, it acts as a binding material and is a mortar, but is not obviously cement based, right? Uh, because it's lime based. So, and then kind of that kind of, um, how do you say, um, binds this uh, this roofing structure. So, and that's how you get spans or, you know, a five meter span has a roof and so on. But again, like flat roofs were different then, right? We didn't actually um, have as many and because they were complicated and they were expensive to build. Uh, whereas almost everything that we build now is flat roofed usually because it's easy to do that. So, I mean, there's so much, What's interesting is also not to just see kind of what they built like in the past, but then in some of these buildings, you can really see the transition into like more like for the, uh, you know, into new newer ways of building. So you'll see multiple types of structures. So sometimes sloping roofs, sometimes this Madras Terrace type of roof, sometimes even reinforcement even in the historic buildings. Let's move on to the bubonic plague uh, before we dive into the epidemic of 1896, uh, which later hit Bangalore in 19, sorry, 1898. Uh, yeah. If I'm not wrong, uh, can you describe what Bangalore was like back then? Uh, can you talk about the population, the kind of trade, uh, transportation system, healthcare, and the overall layout of the city uh, right before the plague? Mm, okay, so before the plague uh, in yeah, so I mean, let me say something about the plague first. So the bubonic plague uh, came uh, through maritime routes, right? So it was carried by ship from other countries uh, to India, and then trying, which found itself in Bombay and supposedly kind of transported across parts of the country through the railway system, through the railway system that the British had built. Um, so by then, kind of, um, 
there had been many cholera epidemics and so on. Uh, and the difference between pandemic and epidemic is the scale. And everyone is now familiar with what the difference between pandemics and epidemics are thanks to uh, COVID-19. So there had been multiple um, sort of small uh, epidemics throughout uh, India of cholera, which were supposed to be endemic to the regions. But um, really nothing ha much had been done or you know, large scale to address uh, these issues, right? And also by then kind of um, perceptions of disease were that there was something about with his, which is, uh, it's called miasma theory, which is basically disease was thought to predominate from kind of these airs that waft from places. So it's like inherent to the environment as opposed to how we understand it now where there is a mechanism of transmission, right? From one person to another, which is germ theory. So, um, so I mean, there were these very dated understandings of where disease came from and predicated from as well. And then at the same time, uh, not much was being done in terms of public health, right? But then now once the plague strikes, uh, it really scares and sends these shockwaves throughout Europe because they had, uh, they've experienced the black black death and it kind of uh, scared um, uh, the hell out of them. So then um, various European countries uh, said they would put a trade embargo on, on the British um, and their empire because of the fact that they didn't want it to come and spread to different parts. So suddenly this changes the why, why the response is so severe in that they, they because they're threatened with a trade embargo is when they start to address the plague, right? So it's a very protectionist as opposed to, oh, this is for the people sort of thing. So it's very much to kind of um, not be blamed or not uh, not be uh, penalized for not for inaction. Basically, that puts the colonial government into working. Um, but then what happens is um, by this time, uh, Bangalore is kind of developing as this bifurcated city. So then you have these two parts, right? Which is the civil and military station, which is what what was for uh, in simple ways the. European part of the city, even though it wasn't fully European, but this construction was created and Kaban Park separates it from what is the native part of the city, right, which is supposed to be Bangalore City. So these two halves of the city existed by this time. And um, what happens with the plague is that kind of it gives them reason, it gives the government reason to enact these very uh, draconian laws, as well as these huge um, changes within governance itself because they're like okay we have to respond to this emergency right but then they themselves lacking the knowledge of what this disease was and how it spread meant that they kind of acted enact these uh, laws in various different avenues so one of the big ones was uh, planning so convinced that kind of these some of these localities were were the reason for the disease and some people in particular and you can imagine that they are marginalized groups are the cause for the disease is what they were what they believed uh, when we know in reality that that's not the case because we understand what the bubonic plague was now so many like they had many of these slum re redevelopments so they were just kind of raised to the ground these uh, hut hut like huts and you know various uh, quite um impoverished people would get displaced and dispossessed or basically taken to camps and you know things like that and new localities came in right and so really um and while this process most people look at it very simplistically right like oh new development this is good housing because it was planned and, and but the reality was that suddenly land which was not very valuable was being sold for huge value uh so it was really a profit-making uh, enterprise as well 
So it really starts to change the landscape of the city because the plague hits, but then the impacts of the plague kind of go on for 20, 25 years after that. So the city starts to begin to expand because all these new localities come up uh, in the name of hygienic housing. But the reality is also they're obviously very profitable development projects that's making huge revenue for uh, the government and the municipalities. So the so that was primarily for uh, social distancing and trying to isolate uh, the plague uh, and hence moving to new localities or new housing. So that was the main reason or was it understood or was it just used as a reason, like you said? Uh, used as a reason, but I don't think it was as much social distancing as opposed to some populations and some localities believing to have inherently had the disease. Okay. So quite racist ways of uh, some populations uh, being more uh, prone to the disease and like, you know, problematic records saying, oh, but European officers are not getting this disease. And well, that's really not true, right? Because uh, we know that. And uh, so so kind of these ideas and then um, people moving away because they don't really know the cause of the disease. They don't really know. So only later and by the turn of the 20th century, they start to realize that it's rats, but it's not just rats, it's fleas on rats that are carrying this disease, right? So they, can, they don't know really what the cause is. So they kind of inherently believe that it's just the way Indians are living or it's the way some Indians are living that's creating this disease. So constantly these discussions in the records can keep showing, oh, they're huddled up in these dark houses and that's what causes the disease when we know that that's not what causes the disease. So. Uh, I, it's less about social distancing as opposed to having very fixed ideas of what will what will be hygienic and trying to import what they thought of hygiene from 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 parts in Europe to India or at least attempting to. Uh, how did the plague transform Bangalore with respect to architecture? You talked about the layout, uh, uh, mm -hmm. about the roads and infrastructure, and where can you see some of those? Uh, transformation in today's Bangalore? So uh, some one of my arguments is that, um, okay, <laughs> so many parts of the city are impacted by the plague. Um, so many of these localities were influenced by it. So Fraser Town, uh, uh, towns that came, uh, then even Maleshwaram, Basangudi, Chamrajpet. Uh, so some of these existed. So Chamrajpet had already existed or had come into existence before the plague hits. And then Chamrajpet had this kind of form of housing where the houses abutted each other. But then having experienced the plague, uh, they were convinced that it's because of the walls shared by different housing that that's how the disease is uh, spreading. So uh, they changed or the logic was to change that the house should be located within a compound that's surrounded by a setback because it is the ground that carried it. So they didn't want the walls to be sharing. So then that kind of influenced the way housing was built. So then you have a house surrounded by a compound built in multiple localities. So like Fraser Town, for example, or even Cooktown has these kind of houses which have a compound around, so ground around it. So that's a big influence, I would say, about the plague in Bangalore. Um, also so much of... Um, yeah, just the, the, I think the rapidness with these localities came about is also owed in part to the plague, right? Um, because there was suddenly another urgency created by the plague to kind of get these localities quite quickly um, made so that people 
who they were living in congested parts could kind of move to them. But of course, it's not everyone that was allowed to move to them because you have to afford it to move to it. So I think that it changed. Um, I, I think it's very visible and it's um, in any of these planned localities. I think that, that division is very visible still today. You describe how this uh, epidemic was an important time in history uh, mm -hmm. of India during which you know the Western medicine was being slowly accepted yeah. by a larger group of Indians. Uh, but did this also act as a catalyst uh, which eventually led to the active study in medicine and setup of uh, clinics and medical institutions that we see today? Yeah. I mean, so it's both, right? We have to take this as as for what it is, which is that um, just the, I'm using the analogy of trains here. So a lot of people will come back from colonialism and say, "Oh, but colonialism gave us trains," you know. And then, yeah, I mean, they were yeah they built trains to export materials and take them to different parts of the country so that they could send it and ship it abroad. So I mean, so healthcare coming about because of it, I don't think is uh, necessarily some kind of, um, or, uh, you know, any of these actions towards uh, treatment is not, I think should be read for what it is, which is that it was another part of the colonizing civil, civilizing mission, right, in which they, they thought that they have to change um, the ways in which this country functions, um, as opposed to any sort of generosity or magnanimity that uh, was any of these things were designed with. So, um, Okay, so in terms of even the people who find the vaccines, right, some of these are medical practitioners from Europe who are kind of coming to India to try to make their careers out of it and test on different people and uh, then win Nobel Prizes and be known for this. So these people are not just doing it from the goodness of their heart or something, mm -hmm. right? They're also coming for various different reasons to come and do these things. So, but mainly when I say that people begin to accept Western medicine, it's not because of the fact that suddenly people have been educated into it and they now understand how Western medicine is the light to follow or something. It kind of is forced on people, right, in this very sudden way. So you've had this ignor ignoring of public health uh, throughout uh, the 19th century, to the, throughout the long 19th century. And suddenly, only when these trade embargoes come about, suddenly you realize, okay, okay. If we don't do something about it, we're, we're going to have be penalized. So then these responses are kind of triggered by that, right? So they kind of force and impose vaccinations on people and so on. And again, these are all trial and error methods. So there's so many records saying how people were really scared of it because they don't understand what it is because suddenly it's an engagement with something so different from people might have had. But also the painting of people uh, um, of uh, inhabitants in the city and Indians to be very, how do you say, not being accepting of Western medicine in a way that, uh, you know, that they're, too, they're painted as kind of some savages who don't understand it. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a duality in what they were trying to do, right? Um, and um, so, and suddenly overnight when you introduce um, an entire new way of uh, treating medicine. I think it takes a lot of time to adapt for people as well. And uh, so when they actually, so a big part of it, and I don't know enough, and so I'm just going to say superficially, a big part of what happens with Tilak becoming popular in terms of the national movements is because of the plague, for example. 
because people in pune are uh, you know they are con- they are going on house searches and trying to identify the disease and doing quite invasive things and um, so really it becomes to infuriate a lot of indians and uh, they start to react quite aggressively against this uh, sort of colonial uh, imposition uh, so you've uh, worked on this plague uh, how long have you worked on this plague for before i ask the question can you Tell me how long have you been researching this subject? So my research is not just on the plague, but basically it kind of looks at housing uh, and uh, these residential suburbs that kind of get built between a period between 1881 to about 1920 in Bangalore. And uh, so, but what one of the big things that I'm saying is that that the plague influences so much of how it's built and shaped, right? So it's really my PhD project that I kind of began applying for uh, in about 2018, and then. I I was awarded a scholarship and then began researching it in 2019 so I've been doing this research for about 2 years and a couple of months um actively but then I suppose the interest began before that uh, so do you think we've missed some lessons uh, from uh, the bubonic plague uh, that we could have incorporated into our current situation uh, do you see some uh, something interesting that could have uh, uh eased out what with the current trends of covid i mean there's so many things that we should relate to right um just in terms of marginalization itself uh like you know the blaming of disease on poorer and marginalized populations is not something that's unique and uh, what's interesting is that it just happened even now so like suddenly uh without taking names there like huge uh muslim groups that were meeting were blamed to be spreading the disease and so on and these kind of ideas are not new they really have been not changed and it's kind of quite shameful that that's the case right but also even in terms of migrants moving back from these big cities it, the same thing happened during the bubonic plague which is that the migrants or who are working who are very precarious in terms of very working class migrants working on construction sites working in terms of sanitation of the city whether it's cleaning whether it's sweeping whether it's the pavanamikas and so on it's the same then in that mainly the sanitation and um, and drainage and sewage systems really relied on such human labor right and um, and not much has changed in that way so without these people who were working and helping with this uh, i mean so many records talk about how the cities were kind of like mountains of filth because uh, many of these populations were not protected in any way or given any incentives or helped in any way to deal with the plague as well and i i mean i could just see the same things now so the biggest fear of the colonial government and why they were kind of monitoring trains and you know bus i mean there were no buses but trains and other public transport kind of systems was because they were so scared that it had come to these urban centers right and was going to take be taken and go back to rural india as well and they 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 kept being fearful that if they limited it within the urban centers then that it wouldn't spread everywhere but then in trying to do that it's not only surveillance that you have to do how do you how do people who don't have very much sustain for months on end without uh, jobs without um, incentives without uh, i don't know support so i don't know i think it's very humbling when we think back about historically how little has changed and i think i suppose I think it's also ironic that um the law that gets introduced in 1897 which is called the Epidemics Act Epi- Epidemics and Diseases Act is really what gets even what got even put during the COVID pandemic now so it's that same colonial era law 
and so i think that much has to be uh, said and discussed about how how much is owed to colonialism in these draconian ways of acting as a government uh, you you talked a bit about transportation and uh, you specifically mentioned buses which i highly advocate uh, can uh, can you talk about public transportation uh, or in general the transportation uh, design uh, the design of pedestrian pathways and roadways Uh, if you've come across in your research historically you mean yes uh, during the plague or during yeah historically so i mean i don't know uh, apart from basically uh, bangalore was quite interconnected and it's actually on the maratha msm what is that it's the maratha southern railway which is basically where the first case of uh, the plague gets recorded itself right because uh, one of the symptoms of the plague was that they would develop these swellings on their bodies called buboes and uh, so that's where they discover the first case so i think that they had quite a quite a interconnected train service and so the trains were monitored constantly because they didn't want people to leave or people to come in carrying the disease but apart from that i don't know enough to say about how uh, long like uh, how pedestrian traffic worked uh, uh this also you talked uh, quite a bit uh, about how research or historical research can help us uh, can you talk about uh, research that specifically looks into uh, architecture and the cultural response to say uh, the epidemic uh, how what can we learn from those and how can that help us build better cities and communities uh, in the future um i think that i suppose i don't know if i've made it clearly enough but i suppose what i've been trying to allude to is that people think of architecture and design as some somehow apolitical or removed from the realities of everyday life right and they're very much entwined and are representative of what everyday life is and politics is so um so i just think that if uh, if design and architecture don't address uh, everyday issues of people and public spaces and the lack of it then there's very little to kind of uh, push forward with whereas um how do i say so i think that it became very obvious how we lacked public spaces within the city so when we were during lockdown there were so limited ways that i could walk where um apart from walking in residential localities like there was nowhere to go and so i think that these are glaring observations that public spaces are actually now being used as commercial spaces like malls and these are not public spaces are they so so if as designers as architects as urban planners if we don't think about these scenarios and think about how all of these things are interconnected uh i think that we don't really take lessons from the past and we don't really cater to wider wider discussions and i think they're all enmeshed so i don't think you can design or be an architect without uh, paying heed to kind of these social movements or or, or political movements uh do you see yourself working on design and planning of uh, futures towns and cities i know you're occupied with academia right now but uh, maybe in the future do you plan on uh, actively working on building i i don't see myself working on planning uh, because i don't think i'm either trained or also um, yeah it's just not what i am interested in or i feel i can contribute to 
but I do see that I can work still with historic buildings and trying to sort of um, complicate our relationship with historic buildings and which which is a part of planning in itself, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have some questions that I uh, ask my guests uh, on every episode. Uh, so what are you currently working on uh, in your uh, research, in your career and also in your life? So I'm two years and two months into my PhD and that might go on for about another year and a half. So I've just, uh, I, I'm just uh, sort of writing a few chapters for that. Um, I think that, uh, so, and, and you, sorry, your second question is what else I'm working on and what I want to work for in the future? Uh, yeah, just what, 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 your, what, are you, what are your plans currently and where do you see yourself in a few years or what do you see yourself working on? So for me, especially, I think that this might apply to many historians and many people who write about India. The, the relationship between practice and uh, academia is not so obvious, right? It's more blurred because when you have... Um, when you have very little records or you want to challenge the historic records that exist, which are very colonial, a lot of what you do is actually go and physically measure buildings and look at things yourself and uh, examine sites, not just sit in a sort of look in only archives. So in terms of practice, these kind of go hand in hand with what you're writing. So I see myself doing that or continuing to do that, I think. Uh, I'd like to continue to do that. Um, whether they'll have me is a different thing altogether. Um, yeah, and uh, I think that I, I suppose I see myself as someone who's contributing to discourse and trying to make uh, the history of these cities or Bangalore in particular quite compelling for people to see and understand and feel like they're a part of something bigger as opposed to these isolated monuments, right? And uh, I think that I hope to do that through my academic work. Uh, can you name some books that you value? Um, <laughs> I suppose, uh, what do you call it? I mean, so there's obviously what I read uh, for the PhD, but then I think that uh, something that I really enjoy, which enmeshes a lot of what I do with the PhD, which is post-colonial theory and history is anything written by Amitav Ghosh, right? Um, so I would recommend literally anything written by him, whether it's Glass Palace or... Uh, the Ibis trilogy, I think that uh, something that really stood out to me, if you're interested in trying to understand the plague in colonial medicine, though he's not talking about the plague per se, and it's more malaria, I would recommend Calcutta Chromosome by him. I mean, it just paints a fantastical image of uh, this sort of um, medical practitioner coming from Europe called Ronald Ross and how he engages with the Indians in trying to find the cure for malaria. And he weaves this amazing narrative. So I think that uh, I mean, that book just gave me a lot of food for thought. So I would I would just recommend reading anything of his to kind of gauge a, a better picture of maybe perhaps the lens that I'm trying to contribute to. What values in life are important to you? In general? <laughs> yeah, in general, uh, this podcast is themed around creating values. So uh, do you have any... Uh, any suggestions of what, what do you find, uh, what values you find uh, are important? Empathy and kindness more than anything else, I suppose. Empathy towards everyone and just building more 
emphatic structures that support people uh, in all forms of uh, in all forms and solidarity with marginalized groups i suppose so the empathy to be able to do that the kindness to be able to do that and not in ways of charity or uh, doing good or savior <laughs> ways but just have that inherently to understand and recognize inequalities so empathy uh, where can people find out more about you and your work how can they connect to you online uh i suppose at present uh, i mean i do keep writing pieces here and there and at the moment and there are some academic things in the work but i suppose now they could connect to me on my social media which is twitter where uh, might be the repository of where i post some new work or where i'd be speaking at for example uh yes this this was really interesting and valuable i Uh, my uh, historical background is really bad but uh, i learned so much today so thank you so much for uh, spending uh, time with me and uh, telling me about uh, bangalore and its history uh, and thank you for working in conservation projects uh, that's pretty cool uh, and also i'm looking forward to reading your uh, publications so thank yeah. you uh, thank you for taking time to speak with me thank you for having me